Joshua chapter 9. We'll be picking up in this glorious book. We had a week last week when we weren't in Joshua, but we were privileged to be in that marriage seminar that John Kwasney held, and we greatly benefited from that from, for all of us who attended. So we thank you, John. But tonight we're picking back up in Joshua chapter 9, and this is a very instructive part of God's word, so let us pay attention as we hear his word read. This is the very word of God. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland along all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wine skins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants, come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread, it was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shapira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, but all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. 
So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us. Now therefore you are cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Father, this is your word and we need your Holy Spirit to speak it to us in clarity and in power. We need the unction of the Holy Spirit to come upon this mouthpiece, this voice crying in the wilderness that the power of the Holy Spirit would speak and that your voice through your word would be heard by your people and that they would be refreshed, that the wilderness would blossom and that they would go in and out and find pasture. Lord, we pray your blessing upon each one who is here and may all who are here be refreshed and may they be encouraged that know you and strengthened in the Lord and May those who don't know you be convicted and may they come to this place today and leave with saving grace, having found Jesus to be this one who has been seeking them and that he has found them this very night and called them to be his own children. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. The con and the covenant. This is an amazing story. It's an account of people who lived only about six miles from where Joshua was encamped with all of the people. And they had four cities and they, it tells you that they were Hivites. So they were of those who were of the Canaanite nation who were devoted to total destruction. They were to be destroyed. And so they, all of those people, the, the, the inhabitants there in those, in those cities there had, had decided that they weren't gonna make war against, uh, they wasn't gonna give up, but instead they, all the Amorites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the, all those people there that it mentioned, they were all going to gather together and they were not going to surrender, but they were going to fight, even though they had heard the same things about what God had done in his mighty wonders in Egypt, they had heard about his mighty wonders in, in Taog and, and uh, in Bashan, and they had heard about uh, Joshua and uh, God giving them the victory over Jericho, and they had heard about uh, Ai, and, uh, and yet uh, they still are making their plans to stand up and continue to fight and to fight to preserve their territory because 
They wanted to continue to live there even though God was giving them over to destruction because of their great iniquities and sins that he had been patient with them for 400 years. And now that cup of wrath had grown to the very boiling point so that now God had said, you are to go in and you're to take everything and destroy it. Every man, woman, child, beast, nothing is to be left alive. They're devoted to destruction so that they wouldn't bring his people into a place where they would continue to, to learn the ways of those people who had who were pagans and who had been serving false gods and idolatry for all of these years, even offering their children as sacrifices into the fire god, Chemosh. So God is trying to protect his children from any outside influences that would harm them. God is always out to do his people good. He's always for us and not against us. And so we need to listen to his word. And it's an amazing thing how we just, in chapter 8, we just had covenant renewal. And how also that they had not sought the Lord's advice and his counsel when they first attacked the city of Ai after that great victory at Jericho. But instead, they just went because they felt like they could just take it because it was a small city and they didn't seek the counsel of the Lord, but they went. And so... They were defeated in battle, and over 3,000 people were killed, and that's where then Achan committed that sin was discovered that, that uh, there was sin in the camp. And so then God gave them the victory, gave them instructions about how to take the city and how to do it and how to set the ambush and to do everything. And so then they were given that great victory. So. God is the one who is in charge. He's the commander of the host of Israel, and he is the one who is fighting the battles, and they're just his soldiers in his army, but they're in a spiritual warfare. They're in a physical warfare. We're in a spiritual warfare, and we're still fighting that old devil, and the devil here, you'll see he has many ways, and we're not unaware of the schemes of the devil and his wiles. And so that's what it tells us that we're to be paying attention to those things so that we're not taken unawares because he's always looking for a way to trip up God's people. He's looking for a way to stop God from fulfilling his plan of salvation through Jesus Christ and to bring his kingdom to this earth. And so this is just another way through this ruse that he's doing here to cause the people of Israel to walk by sight and not by faith. We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. And so here they come and, and these people have been planning because they've, they've heard. They've heard the things that have happened. And they're, they're, they're smart enough to know in these four cities that they're going to die. And let's just face it. They, they got sense enough to know that God is, he's already destroyed these other cities and who do they think they are that they're going to stand against this mighty God who has already given such great victories? And he's promised his people this land for centuries, and now he's fulfilling on what he said, and he's a God who keeps his word. So they, they're scared, and so they don't want to die. And so they come up with this plan that they're going to make it look like that they don't live close by, that they're not one of these people who are designated under the ban of destruction. And so they're not, they're, they're not telling anything about being Hivites or being part of those seven nations that are going to be wiped out. So they, they instead, they come up with this plan to where 
They say they're going to make it look like that they come from a very, very far country. And God made it clear back over in, in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter, um, chapter 20, verses 10 through 18, he gave the, a way for people that lived far away that they wouldn't be destroyed, that when they, they came, when the children of Israel came to their cities, if they surrendered, then there would be peace. But for the people that were under the ban of destruction, everything was to be annihilated. But if the people in the far countries didn't surrender, didn't declare peace, then they were to kill every man, but not any of the women and children or any of the animals. They were to be able to take those for themselves. So you see God's grace and goodness in what he's doing here. That he's punishing the guilty and he's making it sure that his judgment is going to fall upon those who have despised his name and not respected him in uh, all of those years. So now they come up with this plan that they're gonna make it look like by getting real old clothes. Uh, I don't know, maybe they had a yard sale somewhere. I don't know what they did, but they got old clothes and they got all these, uh, they got sandals that looked like they had been worn out. I don't know what they did. Maybe they put them in some kind of, of water and stream or something, left them out in the sun to bake and all that stuff or whatever they did. But they, they made themselves look as though, and they got old moldy bread, and they, they had left it there for a while there where they were, not too far away, but they made it look like it was, they said it was fresh baked that morning when they got there and looked, uh, but when they left, but now that they had gotten there, it was old and moldy, and so they see all these things, and they look, and they see all these worn-out clothes. They see these people that are just ragamuffins, and they see these people that are, Dragon, and they see this hardly have any food. They hardly have anything decent to eat, and it's all worn out and nasty and musky and all of that. So they're they're playing this 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 ruse, this con. They're trying to pull the wool over the people of Israel's eyes, and they're doing a good job of it because the people and they and Joshua questions them, and the leaders question them, and where you come from, and they they tell them we come from a far away place, you know. We come from a far land, you know, and they keep mentioning that over and over, you know. And they're smart enough to not mention that they knew anything about the battles of Jericho and Ai because those were recent battles. And so instead they mentioned about Og and Bashan and those battles that were up there in those northern parts up there that had been known about for quite some time. And so they mentioned that they've heard about this from about the great God and how he had he had given them great victories over those enemies up there. And so now they had come from this great far land far away and they wanted to make peace and they wanted to make a covenant with Israel. And so it tells us here that, that one of the things that Joshua and the leaders did not do was that they says in verse 14, so the men took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Now it was there for them in Numbers 27, 21, you could get wisdom from the Lord. God made it plain through Ahad Eleazar the priest and he had the Urim and the Thummim. And so that was on his breastplate there so they could go to him and they could ask of the Lord and somehow the Lord would 
give them a yes or a no answer by which with one of the stones in, in that side, one would be yes and one would be no, and the priest would know which one it was, and so they could get a yes or a no answer. So they could have gone and asked the Lord, do these people come from a faraway place? Yeah. And they would have got a yes or a no. They would have got a no. <laughs> but they didn't even inquire of the Lord. They didn't do anything, but they just went by their sight. How many times do we do that? How many times do we think that we got it under control? We don't really need God in this situation because we can handle this. We, it looks easy. It looks like we can, we can do it. It looks like we don't need. That's one of the worst mistakes that we can possibly make. I, I want to encourage you young people. Uh, I want to encourage you to not make your decisions on a spouse by just what you see. I want you to make your decisions. It's all right to go by some sight. It's nothing wrong with having a handsome spouse or a beautiful, a beautiful lady to be your wife. Uh, there's some of us that have been fortunate enough to have both, <laughs> and Carl and Caleb and myself and, and also Dean, and so we're very thankful for that. But the main thing is that you get the woman who is the Lord's choice for you, or you get the man who is the Lord's choice for you. So a lot of you have had parents who have been praying for you all of your days, ever since you were born, praying that God would lead you to the right man or woman of his choosing so that you would be married and not unequally yoked, so that you would be able to be able to live together in Christian harmony, in a Christian home, raise Christian children, bring them up for the Lord, and through generation after generation, have God's blessing upon your life. So I just want to encourage you with that. But so many times we just, we just think that we can handle things without God's help. And, and sometimes, you know, like, I mean, we got sense enough to know that if you go to the refrigerator and there's some putrid meat in there, you got sense enough to know you don't have to pray about it to know you need to throw the stuff out and don't eat it, okay? So I'm not talking about things like that, but I'm talking about, you know, things that are of, of other consequences that you need to seek the Lord, especially for his spiritual wisdom and for his guidance. Yeah. And so they did not do that, and so they make this covenant with them. They make peace with them. And, and so uh, they find out three days later that their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beeroth and Kiriath-Jerim, and they're just right around the corner. They're not far away. They hadn't come from a great distance. They hadn't come from afar, but they're their neighbors. And so Joshua and the leaders go to them and say, why did you deceive us? Why did you tell us a lie? Why did you con us like this? And they said, because we had heard about the things about your God, and we, we wanted to live. And we wanted to make you to make a covenant with us. And, and Joshua had made the covenant. And the leaders had sworn that they would not do harm to these people. Now, the, the people in the congregation were very upset with Joshua and the leaders because they made this covenant with the people. And they still wanted Joshua and the leaders to go in there to those four cities and kill them all. But they knew better because they had sworn an oath in the Lord's name and they had to stand by God's word because they couldn't put God's word to shame, to open shame in the territory anywhere. 
It tells us that we're, we're what? What does it tell us in Psalm 15? It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. We're supposed to be like our God and swear. Doesn't mean that we're supposed to swear. We're not supposed to swear. I mean, not swearing like cursing or taking the Lord's name in vain. We certainly don't do that. But I mean, for us, we take an oath or a vow when we get married, things like that. But, on a, we're some, not, but when we give somebody our word, when we tell somebody that we're going to do something, we're supposed to do it. And even if we told somebody that we're going to do something and a better offer comes along a few weeks or a few months later, we don't go back and say, look, I really appreciate you offering me that job and I sure was excited about that, but now I've got an opportunity here to, to go to Florida and to have a really great job down there on the golf course and I'm gonna be able to live down there and just enjoy life in such a great way and they're gonna pay me twice as much money as what I'd be making up here and so I'm just gonna to have to back out of that. No, you stay because you gave your word that that's what you wanted. You were excited about getting that job when you took it and you're supposed to stay there until the Lord moves you. That's what we're supposed to do. Pray about staying where God has put you until God in his timing decides to move you somewhere else. Be content, be satisfied in your circumstances and in the places where you are. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I know you've all had opportunities to, to go back on your word, and sometimes you probably have, but I'm encouraging you, ask forgiveness for that and never do that again. Ask the Lord to help you to no matter what you say. If you say you're gonna be somewhere to meet somebody, be on time. If something has come up that you can't be there, that you can't fulfill that responsibility that you said you were gonna do, Call them, let them know that you're gonna be a few minutes late or something comes up. But don't just leave people holding the bag. Do what you're supposed to do. You've got God's honor at stake. You're supposed to be a vessel of honor for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to be. And so we're not supposed to bring any shame to his name. We're supposed to act like him in every regard. So these people then, uh, they, they, they make the, they've made this covenant with them and they're going to keep this covenant. And, you know, they, they say, we're going to tell you what we're going to do. We're not going to kill you, but you're going to be woodcutters and servants. You're going to be drawers of water for the house of my God all the days of your life. We're going to be, you're going to be our servants. You know, that's, that's going to be your role. And they said, that is fine. We are your servants. Do whatever is pleasing in your sight. Uh, and so uh, they did that. 
And the thing of it is that Joshua, it says in verse 27, made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. For the altar of the Lord. You know what that means? That most of the time that they were going to be carrying out their responsibilities in the temple. That they were going to be there by God's grace. These people who were connivers, who were swindlers, who were con men, but who knew that they were going to die. And they were willing to do whatever it took to plead for mercy. And they came to, and they accepted their role on God's terms. And God in his mercy put them in the very place where they would be able to hear about the great and mighty deeds of the God of Israel. They were there to learn all about the Levitical sacrifices. They were there to learn all about the past history of Israel, starting with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. My goodness alive. All of these things, there they are, hearing all of the Torah, learning, bringing up their children and all of these things, getting to hear and to learn about God and to start worshiping him and serving him. And it, I, I just wanted to... To, to read to you something here from James Montgomery Boyce in his, uh, in his expositional commentary on Joshua. And he was talking in it about Francis Schaefer. Schaefer. And Schaefer was comparing the Gibeonites in some ways to Rahab. And Rahab was spared even though she was a Canaanite. And here the, the Gibeonites, they are spared even though they're Canaanites, they, they didn't do it in the same way that she did, but they acknowledged that God was powerful and they were willing to serve and they came and God in his grace showed them mercy and kindness. And, but God, God saved a remnant out of the Canaanites for himself, just like he saved a remnant in Rahab from out of the people of Jericho. What a great and merciful God we find there and how he took Rahab and caused her to be, uh, later on, to be married to Salmon. And Salmon became the father of Boaz. And Boaz became the husband of Ruth. And Ruth became the great-grandmother of King David, who is one of the ancestors in the line of the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. What great mercy and kindness our Lord shows in unexpected ways to people who don't deserve it. People like me and you. We didn't deserve it any more than these people did. But he says here that Schaefer makes a point of the Gibeonites' loyalty once they made their decision. For many years after this incident, there was war between the citizens of the land and the invading Israelites. Yet never once in the record of that long conquest do we hear of any Gibeonite defecting to his original side, so they prospered. When the land was divided, Gibeon was one of the cities given to the line of Aaron. It became a special place where God was known. Approximately 400 years later, David put the tabernacle in that city. This meant that the altar and priests were in Gibeon as well. At least one of David's mighty men, those who were closest to him in battle, was a Gibeonite. 
At that important and solemn moment when Solomon, David's son, ascended the throne, Solomon made burnt offerings at Gibeon. It was there he had his vision when God spoke to him about his coming rule. Much later still, about 500 years before Christ in the time of Zerubbabel, the genealogies of those Jews who returned from captivity under the Babylonians included a list of the Gibeonites. This is especially striking because the names of some who claimed to be Jews were not found in the registry and they were not allowed to be a part of the Jewish nation. In the days of Nehemiah, the Gibeonites were mentioned as being among the people who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. The Gibeonites had come in among the people of God and hundreds of years later, they are still there. Wow. What an amazing thing God did in drawing those people to himself. They became drawers of water. Jesus drew them to himself that they might taste of the living water, that they might become a part of his people. And now it tells us that we're supposed to be seeking God's wisdom. Don't just act without thinking. Just don't walk by sight, but walk by faith. James says in chapter 1 verses 2 through 8, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave on the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Matthew 10:16 says, Jesus is speaking. And he says, here I am sending you out as sheep with wolves all around you. So be as wise as serpents and yet as harmless as doves. Second Corinthians 2.11, Paul says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And then he tells us in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, that about how do we are to put on the whole armor of God because we're in this spiritual warfare, that we're to seek wisdom from the Lord. We're to be in his word. We're to be in prayer. We're to be in worship services. We're to be partaking in the sacraments. We're to make ourselves available for these means of grace that God has provided for us so that we will not be taken underwares, so that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we will desire the sincere milk of the word and grow thereby. And it says, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Boy, that's one of the great verses. That's one of the verses that we learned when we were youngsters. I hope all of you have learned that verse and that you continue to not lean upon your own understanding, but trust in the Lord, and he will guide you in all your ways. Don't despise God's mercy. You must come to him on his terms. Sinclair Ferguson says, 
God never justifies your sin, but he is never paralyzed by it. That's a great quote. That even though we sin, just like these people did, they didn't inquire of the Lord, it is, but God in his purposes brought many things to pass for his great glory and for his great good in spite of their not being obedient to what he said to do. He brought something magnificent out of it. And he says that a broken and a contrite heart that you will not despise. I hope that it will be said of us that when we come to the place at the end of our days, that it will be said that we acted like those Gibeonites, that we stayed faithful, that we fought the good fight of faith, that we didn't run from the spiritual warfare and the battles, but we trusted in the Lord who is mighty in battle, mighty to save, who is the conqueror of sin, death, and the grave, who gives the victory and who sticks by his people, who helps us in our weaknesses and in our infirmities, who causes us, and though we are weak and without strength, when we were without God and hopeless, helpless in this world, that he called us out of, his, out of the Satan's kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of marvelous light so that we might have the light of the wisdom of God in the word shining upon us so that thy word, Lord, will be a light to my path, a lamp to my feet day by day. Guide me in your truth, O oh God. Cause me to walk in your paths. Help me to stay faithful. Forgive me my sins, Lord. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Cause me to be a vessel of honor for you. And Lord, when it's all said and done, to you be all the glory and the praise and the honor because we never would have been able to do it if you didn't do what you said, that you would never leave us nor forsake us, but that you would stay with us as that friend that sticks closer than a brother. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being my best friend. I pray that you can say that wholeheartedly when you lay your head down on your pillow tonight. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being my best friend, my friend who laid down his life for a sinner like me so that I might be able to dwell in your presence both now and forevermore. May God bless you all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you how great you are. We have just barely touched on a few of the things here in this great chapter that causes us to be able to meditate and to stand in wonder and awe at your greatness, at your majesty, at your mercy, that you are a God of justice, but you are a God of great mercy. And that mercy triumphs over justice. We thank you so much that you have seen fit to cause Jesus to be both the just and the justifier of those who believe. We thank you for standing up for us, Lord, when we never stood up for you. We all fled from the cross. We wanted nothing to do with you, but you loved us in spite of our rebelliousness and our waywardness, and you have sought us out 
and you have brought us to yourself. Oh, how we do thank you. And we can rise and say with David in Psalm 84:10, it is better and I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Oh Lord, help us to be good and faithful doorkeepers, bond servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.